Hello everyone, this is Mitchie, and welcome back to the Manic Manor podcast. I know it's been a little while since we've done a new episode, but I wanted to make sure that when I did cover this episode that I was doing it completely in depth and up to par, so to speak. This is a very heavy case, and it's very mentally draining for anyone who knows about it, especially those who have been in this situation, who have been victims, and have had to deal with so much scrutiny. And before we start this episode, I do want to say straight up that if you are a victim of abuse of any kind, it is not your fault. I know all across the world there is always a certain stigma with people saying, well, you should have come forward sooner, you should have done this, why why did you do that, why were you wearing this? What were you drinking? What were you doing? And no matter where you are in the world, that stigma needs to come to an end. Because that is not okay in the least bit. And it's because of the stigma that we're still having issues like this to date. And depending on where you go in the world, it can be much worse than what you could presume that it is, like, say, in the US and for today's episode we're going to do just that we are in South Korea looking at two very popular cases of cybercrime internet sex crime however you want to do it however you want to say it um, this has been known it's been made into a Netflix adaptation here where the media that took hold of it and exposed it was describing their encounters and their details with unveiling these criminals. Um, if you've seen it on Netflix, it goes under the title Cyber Hell, Exposing an Internet Horror. And Internet Horror is like very lightly putting this because once I got into the nitty gritty details of this, it was stomach churning blood chilling. It's really, really difficult to go into and I hope that I can do the victims justice today. And I will be saying at the end of this as well, nobody deserves what these victims had to go through. Nobody should ever have to go through that. And in the show notes, um, I did manage to find um, the Korea Women's Hotline now, I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to put these in the show notes. Um, this was a establishment that was founded in 1983. Uh, it's the first women's human rights movement in the Republic of Korea, and their main goal is to promote gender equality and eliminate violence against women. So it's going to have all the information. If you are living in Korea, you can go to the website. There's a telephone number, fax number, email. Um, there's even an address for the one that's in Seoul, but there are other addresses across Korea, and it'll give you even directions on how you can find them via subway. Um, now I know I've been doing a lot of South Korean stuff, but this is something that is very, I'm very passionate about. I really want to get this out there, and as a victim of sexual abuse, herself, I want these victims to know that they are not alone 
that no matter how dark it gets, there's always going to be a rainbow after the storm. So, without further ado, we are going to get into this. Um, this is the cases of the Nth Room and Baksa. For those of you who are not familiar with it, this was an issue with cyber sex crimes and blackmailing of at least 74 known victims. And these also included underage girls, which I found to be as young as eight years old or as older as in their 30s or 40s, depending on where you look. Um, it occurred between 2018 to 2020, but some new research could say that um, in the interim themselves was operating as early as 2017. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. There was at least 260,000 users that had access to the photos and videos of these blackmailed women. Uh, they would pay for them using cryptocurrency, such as Bestcoin, that was a really popular one that was used by Boxa, or they would pay in other videos. Uh, when you look at this, um, Depending on which one you look at, now a lot of people think the nth room was just this one big thing, but it wasn't. There were multiple chat rooms that were going on on top of the nth room, such as Baksa. And each of these rooms, they were using methods such as phishing, where they would say to a victim that there was a leaked photo. And the second that the victim clicked on this link, they were able to obtain all sorts of information to blackmail them or they were using methods of saying that they were looking for work, like certain women were wanting to become models, and these people would reach out to them saying, oh, well, I'm a scout, I'm a scouting agent, I can help you. If you would send me these certain types of photos, then I can help you. And as they sent the photos, these photos would get more and more demanding. Like they would demand them to take certain parts of their clothes off, of course, they would have to show their ID because in Korea, when you're looking for part-time work, it's not unusual for you to show your identification. So these girls were tricked into thinking that this was a legit type of scouting agency. And once these people had this information, then they would blackmail them saying, if you don't send me this certain type of photo within X amount of seconds, Here's all this information I know about you, like your father's phone number, your mother's phone number, your co-workers, your place of employment. I will leak these videos to them and ruin your life. So it became this entrapment, like a poor defenseless animal caught into a bear trap where they had no choice. They could not get out. Now, God God's chat room was the nth room. Uh, he was the main proprietor of the nth room itself. Uh, he was known to do the fishing techniques, whereas with the scouting agency, there were the Baksa rooms, and that's how Baksa was known to attract his victims. And within these chat rooms, there were different types of moderators that would work for God God or work for Baksa. 
and they would become managers of these subchats that would leak out photos of, like I said, innocent children even. And how the Netflix documentary starts, like I said, it goes from the point of view of the media outlets that were given tips about this. Because this was happening way before the media outlets were made aware of it. And when you start out the documentary, it's um, with Kim Won of Han Kyore. Excuse me if I messed that up. They were talking about um, how it was about 2019 that they were made aware of this. And when he was given this tip, he went in and he started to look up this. And because... As much as I hate for this to say, this has become such a normalized thing in Korea, he didn't see that there was much of a story. And when I say this is something that's normal, I mean, if you listen to The Dark Side of Soul, Joe and Sean did an entire episode on Mulka. And Mulka is hidden spy cameras, and this ties directly into sex crimes because... Spy cameras are such a major issue in Korea that in the episode itself, they talked about all the places that these cameras had been confirmed to be found, such as like shampoo bottles, the bar labels on shampoo bottles, believe it or not, um, within the shower head, and even as disgustingly as in toilet bowls themselves. So, sex crimes in Korea has been a major issue, whether people want to admit it or not. And this, unfortunately, was just, for some people, another part of the crime. And because of the society that Korea is, while there are some people that are willing to stand up to this and say that this is not right, that it needs to be fixed, there's still a good portion of the population that is... More so on the judgmental side. But regardless of how this man stood, he did do a report on this. Because it was talking about how there was a teenager or a middle schooler or somebody that was distributing child pornography. So he did the report. And he put the report out and he thought that it would be the end of that. Because... The person that was distributing this got caught and arrested, but unfortunately for him and what he didn't realize at the time, that was just the tip of the iceberg. And as a result of Kim Won putting out this report, the people that were in these baksa and interim chat rooms, they were mocking him, they had found his private information, they were trying to... Um, scare him, so to speak, as to not mess with them again. And because of this, I guess they had taken not only being afraid and scared for their families and personal safety of them, but they decided that this is something that they did need to cover. So they did form a task group. And through this task group, um, you know, you had vigilante people that were coming in trying to help, such as Team Flame. They're mentioned in the Netflix documentary. Um, they even did get police involved in this as well. But for the initial thing, they did decide that they were going to try to do a report on this, hoping 
that it would catch Korea as a nation, it would catch its attention, and they would come together to try to put a stop to this. But unfortunately, when they did do the story and it was published, and they were hoping that the nation would be up in arms and try to come together on this, not a lot of people had paid attention to it. And the bad thing about this is, is of course these chat rooms, they were monitoring all this as it was going on. And when they saw that there wasn't a whole lot of attention that was brought to it initially, they were mocking the Hankyore and its reporters for giving them publicity. And it was especially known in Baksa's room because Baksa at one point had changed his um, user ID to say that he was the only um, telegram chat room or whatever that was being put in the media spotlight. And another thing that they would do is they would take photos of victims that they had acquired and say, oh, this is the victim of the Hankyore as a way to try to scare them from reporting any further. Um, just a subtle way of threatening the newspaper for trying to help out the victims. And he was essentially saying that, I don't care, I'm going to put these photos and videos out. So you better not mess with me or I will make these victims' lives a living hell and you don't know what I'm actually capable of. And the most unfortunate thing about this was these videos and photos that these chat rooms had gathered up, they weren't just typical pornography. It wasn't just typical stuff that you would see for voyeurism, like what these mulkakans would do. This was very heinous, grotesque acts. I won't go into major detail about what they would make them do. Um, if you do watch the documentary, they do go into some detail, but it was horrific and it would go as far as making them do these acts that no human being could possibly imagine or even want somebody to do if they were within their right mind. And because the Hankyore didn't get the reaction that they were hoping that they would get, it was defeating and it was extremely heartbreaking because they did want to help these victims, but it felt almost as if by them trying to help, it was doing more harm. And there was such an exhaustion behind it and they didn't know what they were going to do. Like, even the um, vigilante uh, team flame that went in there that would actually monitor these chats and see in real time what these people were doing and the videos that they were sharing and see how they would mock these victims and try to blackmail them and like stalk their houses. It just became so much on their mental capacity that it was pushing them to the brink of giving up. But it seems like even with that capacity being at its limit, there was still through multiple people on social media, a push for justice, uh, justice, excuse me, and there was hashtags that were being created, demanding that something be done, and it was mainly women that were trying to unite together, um, just fed up with all of the bullshit and being constantly ignored, essentially, and this got the attention of, um, 
SBS and Spotlight. Um, a reporter by the name of Jong Jae-won, uh, he thought maybe he could reach out directly to Baksa himself because Baksa was where they initially started their investigation, both with the Han Kyore and SBS. Um, they thought maybe they could reach out to him, maybe figure out why he was doing this. Um, and of course, Baksa took the bait on that, and he was super cocky that he was not going to be caught because he was doing this through Telegram and using cryptocurrency as a method to get payment. He was so confident in being hidden behind all this encrypted stuff that he would never get caught. So when Baksa finally did get in touch with the press and he started doing quote-unquote interviews through, you know, Telegram and everything, he would come up with all sorts of lies about how he had a gang, how he um, did a narcotics ring, how he was either in Cambodia or in China, and it, that was just depending on who he would ever speak to. He even said that he had his own private investigation group, and he would try to keep up with all of these lies. But when the reporters that were interviewing him started to see through this or had genuine questions about his methods, he would get so mad and so upset. And he would throw a fit, essentially, in this chat room. But the cockiness that he had came to a new extreme because he was aware that SBS was going to air a special on this. And he, did, he went so far as to threaten the reporters and the producers by saying if they aired this special, he would get one of his slaves to... This is trigger warning, so for anybody who is distraught or gets easily upset with this, please skip ahead a little bit. He would tell his slaves that they would have to kill themselves by jumping from the building where the special was being aired. And either she was going to jump or set herself on fire. And this scared, this scared everybody that was involved, even um, Team Flame. They asked the producers to please reconsider airing this special because they didn't want the spotlight victim for her name to get out. They didn't want her to be in any kind of danger. But they did go through and they did do the special. And as a result, he made the name of the victim known. And it came as a surprise because some of these people that were doing this special and studying and researching and trying to keep tabs on him, they didn't think that he was actually capable of doing this. And some of them even reached out to this victim to apologize and the victim herself. Now this is something that really upset me when I learned about it. She said that they shouldn't blame themselves because she knew that eventually uh, something like this would happen. Her videos would get out or he would leak them or something. So it's very heartbreaking that essentially she knew that no matter what they did, whether they aired it, whether they didn't, that she was going to have everything aired out and shown for the world to see. So with this victim's information released, he even turned to have a new victim, another victim that he was going to say that she would kill herself 
forced her to release photos and everything saying that she would do so. And, you know, with the police's attention on this, they took it extremely seriously by this point because Baxa was showing that he would keep his word and that's something that they didn't want to have to happen to any other victim. Uh, through research, through, uh, through everything that they had collected, all the photos and everything, they were able to determine who this victim was and they, by comparing photos, they found out that she was a middle school student. So this was like right before the Sola holiday. They rushed as quickly as they could to keep an eye on her to make sure that nothing happened. And this, I will give the police very much the credit that is due. They acted very quick when this did happen. Um, once they finally did make contact with the victim and her family, they did assure the parents that her safety was their top concern, that she would be perfectly safe and Baksa could not hurt her anymore. So now that they have finally gotten one of the victims safe, now they are really starting to get in-depth into finding out who this Baksa person is so they can put a stop to his reign of terror. And through that, and through the SBS special that they aired, they did manage to find out that he used a certain cryptocurrency, like I said before, called Bestcoin. And one of the researchers that was keeping tabs on these chat rooms while this special aired, they were watching in real time as these people were freaking out because they named the cryptocurrency that they were using and they were scared that they were going to get caught. And despite, you know, these members freaking out, Baksa was still super cocky and still super confident that they were totally safe. Um, however, as ironic as it is for both God God's room and for Baksa's room, their methods that they used to try to benefit from these sick crimes in both scenarios would be their downfall. They probably shouldn't have assumed that just because something says that it's encrypted that it's 100% safe because that's not the case. Um, they just had to have a link to be able to see what was going on and through Team Flame that's how they were able to catch certain watchmen that were under uh, the Baksan God, God God rooms. They were able to catch a user by the name of Rabbit because they had access to these chat rooms and they could take screenshots and send it to the police and that was evidence enough to find who these people were because these people in these chat rooms were so confident and so cocky and so adamant that they would not get caught because of this trust in the encryption that it was cutting off their nose to spite their face. So as I said, the confidence that they had in these methods that would keep them from being caught is what gets them caught. And um, it looks like Bucksaw was actually caught before God God was, so we're going to go into how Bucksaw himself got caught. Uh, the police were able to find out this information on the best coin, Bitcoin, all these accounts that Bucksaw would use through the informants and the whistleblowers that were in the chats that were letting the police know, hey, this is his new account, 
Here's screenshots of the name of the crypto account that he's using. And they were able to take all of this information and weave it together into like this necklace of however you would like to say. But they were able to find people that were associated with these things that were like quote unquote runners for him. And these people would sing like canaries because they would be already in police custody and it was kind of like trading information to either lessen their time or whatever but through these whistleblowers through these vigilante justice um, warriors they were able to figure out these people would drop money off in certain areas over Seoul and these people would come pick it up and drop it off to a new person and it was just kind of like a game of dominoes essentially and through this they would essentially stalk these people do stakeouts to see who is getting this money because Baksa said he was either in Cambodia or in China and he had men that would run for him and collect the money well I guess his arrogance got the best of him because the police were able to find that all this money went to one person and they thought this one person was going to put money over into another person's hand but in the long run they found all this money went to the same person and they had concluded from that that it had to be Baksa because Baksa just had to get money in exchange for all of these videos in exchange for memberships in the chat rooms that he was doing he just had to get his hands on that money and from there they were able to follow him back to his house uh, and while he was outside it's the funniest thing ever how they caught him because he was outside from what they specified as he was trying to learn how to ride a bike with his father so they ambushed him while he was out there riding a bike, um, caught him, and this was a 20-something-year-old man that they found. He wasn't in Cambodia. He wasn't this narcotics lord. He wasn't anything special. He was just, from what you see in the documentary and from the photos that you've seen of him, a stereotypical guy just ordinary nothing about him was special whatsoever and when he was caught of course they took him in his handcuffs and everything he's got you can see from the photos and the videos he's got this neck brace around him I guess where the police had tackled him down which if you ask me he didn't need that neck brace he didn't freaking deserve it because of the piece of shit he is but when the Reporters came up to him and they were asking him, you know, what do you have to say to the victims? He didn't even give a freaking ounce of an I'm so sorry. He was still holding on to that last bit of arrogance that he had about himself was, thank you for catching the monster that I could not stop. And honestly, when I, when I watched that, when I saw that, it just... It was like an acidic taste in my mouth. Like he, this piece of shit, bribed these women, lied to them, had them under these false pretenses that he was going to help them. And instead, 
made their lives a living hell, forced them to do all sorts of things, and if they didn't, he would leak out these videos and leak out these photos. So these women, trying their best to either get some money or trying just trying to live their life and live out their dreams, he ruined it for them. And it's not like they can go back 100% to normal because their videos are out there and they're still being distributed. And it goes the same for God God. So during the time that Boxall was doing all of this, you know, God God was doing it too. He was fishing these women, doing the same type of thing that Baksa was doing. And through the investigation within Baksa, that's how they found out about God God. And God God is the one that they speculate had been doing it as early as 2017. But he went on hiatus in the midst of all of this, and nobody really knows why he did, whether he was afraid that he was going to be caught, whether he was going to have, um, like, studies going on and tests going on, because in the chat rooms he would always say, like, his mother told him to get off the phone, or he had to go study, and he had to go do this. So it's unsure why he made the hiatus and then just all of a sudden came back. But even with God God's disappearance and the hiatus for this 11-month period, those chat rooms were still going as strong as Baksa's rooms were going. Um, the reporters that were working on this major case, they assumed that the only reason that God God came back was because when they did the special on Baksa, he talked about how God God's quality of his art, as he would, so to speak, um, his bullshit, was subpar, lackluster, it was not as good as his, and they think that struck a nerve with God God's ego, and as a result, that's why he came out of the woodwork, and he reached out to, um, Jung Jaewon, and wanted to, like, boost himself back up, show that he wasn't this lackluster person, and as a result of the pride, that's what led to God God's downfall. Um, Jaewon, he partnered with this hacker team, they called themselves the Red Team, because of them wanting to take down God God for some reason, and through this, they did the same fishing techniques that God God did to procure his victims to gather information on him and take him down. Which is very ironic, like I said, for both of these heinous, disgusting pieces of trash, the methods that they were using are the methods that took them down. They were able to gather up the IP address of God God, found him in Ansong, and they would circle all of the IP addresses that he would use because he would use different types of phones his, because his father owned this junkyard. And he would use free Wi-Fi and Wi-Fi extenders to run his business because he thought, well, if he kept using all these phones and using all these different IP addresses, even if he was caught, so to speak, they couldn't actually catch him. But because of this, they were able to discover that his father owned that junkyard, uh, where he would be doing it. They found this whole area that he was enclosed in and... 
piece by piece, like the domino effect, stringing everything together, they were able to narrow it down to this is who God God has to be. So they were able to seize phones from his father's junk shop to figure out which ones had committed the crime because there were specific apps that he would use and he would do these screen recordings where he would uh, do live slave shows. Uh, so once again, they were able to catch him. So now that they have caught God God in Baksa, um, it wasn't here until recently that they released the names of who these people were. Uh, God God was Moon Hyungwook and Baksa was Cho Jubin. Um, both of them, when they were caught, they didn't show any kind of remorse for the victims. They didn't make any apology towards the victims. Um, they were asked um, if they knew each other, if Cho and Moon knew each other, and of course neither one of them did. These were completely separate things, but they were just so freaking intense and heavy and disgusting that they assumed that they were working together. Now when it came time for the sentencing, this is what really upsets me. Because I believe both of them, with all of the evidence that was shown, all of the victims that were willing to come forward and talk about what they had to endure despite the PTSD that they would be encountering, these assholes each should be spending the rest of their lives in prison. But, of course, you know, I live in the United States. I don't know completely how the law in Korea works. But, Baksa, he was originally given a sentence of 45 years. For some reason, through appeals or whatever, it was reduced down to 42. God, God, he was given 34 years in prison. Now, I know for a lot of people that's like, okay, yeah, they're spending a good chunk of their lives in jail when they get out because they were in their 20s. They're going to be like in their... 50s, 60s, 70s, um, so they're not going to have their life. Well, they shouldn't be let out anyway because of the extent of what had happened, and that's just my opinion. Now, it was said that thousands of people, like maybe 3,500 at least, were involved in these rooms, and only about 300 of them were caught, so not even like a percent of all these disgusting assholes were caught and prosecuted. And even with some of these people being caught, the videos and the photos of these victims are still circulating around. And it's so hard to take it down because you don't know exactly where they're at. They could be all over the world, unfortunately, with how the internet is. So, here as of 2022, with the new president that has been elected into office in South Korea, there are women that are very concerned for their safety and worried that there could be another situation like this. Because... Initially, when all this went down and everything was caught and a stop was somewhat put to it, 
there was promises that there were going to be revisions to the law in Korea for like criminal law and crime profiting law and all that. They had promised that the age for the consent standard for rape for minors in Korea would go from 13 to 16. Um, they were going to crack down harder on how these criminals were profiting and everything. But unfortunately, there is a new president in. Um, and from the research that I did from him, it doesn't look like he's going to act much on it because it's been quoted that during his campaign, he pledged to abolish South Korea's country gender, uh, excuse me, South Korea's gender equality ministry due to them treating men like quote-unquote potential criminals. And one thing of advice or what opinion that I should say, even though I do not live in Korea, I don't really have a voice to speak from it, but as a woman myself, as somebody who has gone through this situation, you can't just sit there and say it's going to treat all men like potential criminals. That's bullshit. Women know that it isn't all men, but because of the way that the world is right now and the way that people treat them when they try to come through and try to say that something has happened to them and they want justice, even if it's just that person going to jail, doing the time, something, they just want justice. You can't throw up the, but it's not all men, because these women, these girls, people that you know, have to sit there and look at people, look at men, look at anybody, like they could potentially hurt them. So you have to start fixing that before you can say that they're treating all these people like potential sex criminals. Until you fix the root issue, it's going to be that way. So these women, now they're scared that things will come to a stop in the progress. They're worried that things are going to be overturned. And it's terrifying. It's sickening that these women have to go through day in and day out. Especially the victims. Because these victims, they are still around today. They still have to go day to day concerned about their safety. Not knowing if somebody that they walk by in the street knows who they are because of the, the actions of these disgusting few. The world has been so brainwashed and rigged into ignoring and blame shifting that it ju it just needs to stop. And as I said before, I said from the start of the episode that I was going to say it again, it is never the victim's fault. Anyone, anybody can become a victim of these crimes. And you can never just put this broad blanket on someone or some sort of situation saying, well, they shouldn't have done this. They should have known better. Because it's not like that. The world is not black and white. It is gray, and it's the dingiest, ugliest color of gray. So, for the victims out there who did have the strength and did have the wherewithal to come forward, I just want to say that you guys are so brave, that you are stronger than you think, braver than you seem, and 
you're a warrior of a daughter. And never let anybody take that from you. And I know how hard it is. I know how hard it is to get up every day and have to fight with that. Excuse me. And even for the victims who couldn't find their voice just yet to help out, you are still brave and you are still strong because you are living day in and day out. It's because of people like you that there are so many young girls and women who want to stand up and be brave. And it takes a lot to heal from the trauma and that's perfectly fine. Just you going through the day, you're brave, you're strong, you're tough, and you are still a shining light of beauty and hope. Nothing about you has been tarnished and don't let anybody ever sit there and tell you different. Because it is so much easier to judge looking across the way than to be in the situation and having to fight out of it. <sighs> Excuse me. But that is the case of the Anthroom and the Baksa issues. As I said before, for those of you who are living in Korea, I am going to include the information for the Korea Women's Hotline. Hopefully this is the most update information. I know that um, when I looked it up, this was the most up-to-date. If there is anything in this episode that you feel I need to cover better, anything that I have missed or gotten completely wrong, please do not hesitate to reach out. This is a very serious manner and needs to be taken as such. So, to reach out to me, you can reach me at manicmanorpodcast at gmail.com. You can also comment or reach out on Facebook or Instagram. Um, I do have Patreon as well for those of you who want to join there, want to reach out there as well. That is absolutely not necessary. But I do appreciate everybody who took the time to listen to this episode today. I know it was very long. Probably doesn't make much sense. Um, but I hope that I did it as much justice as I could with how mentally heavy this was. And I do want to thank Sean from the Dark Side of Soul podcast as well for reviewing these notes. And letting me have some of his wisdom because he does an excellent job at studying the history of Korea. So, also on another note, I hope everybody realizes with the seriousness of everything going on, South Korea is not just this perfect little utopia. It is like every other country in the world. I know with um, K-pop and K-drama, especially with groups like BTS, with Blackpink, with all these famous people, it seems like it can be overly glorified, and that has been a major issue as well, especially in the K-entertainment industry. But I hope with this episode, people take it as not everything is as it seems, and we got to realize that these are still people, and they are still capable of doing some of the most disgusting, heinous acts. I'm not saying that your favorite idols or your favorite actors are guilty of that. 
I'm just saying because of all the news that has come out with things like Burning Sun scandal and this internet sex crime issue that has been rampant, it is important for you to sit there and realize. And it's important that we try to take actions to stop this. So that is it for today's episode. I hope you guys have a wonderful week. I hope to be back up on a regular schedule. I know it's been very sporadic and I do apologize for that. But if you have any recommendations that you would like for me to do, please feel free to reach out to me. Like I said, once again, manicmanorpodcast at gmail.com, Facebook at Manic Manor Podcast, and Instagram Manic Manor Podcast, as well as Patreon. Until the next episode, stay safe, guys.